I want you to consider what that means this morning. What things do you most want to hide from everybody else? What things do you wish you could hide from yourself? What things are you most ashamed of? What things do you wish you could undo or take back? What things make you feel sad and guilty? Both the things that you have done and thought and said, and the things that have been thought about you and said about you and to you, and the things done to you. What things do you want taken away? What things do you want finished? And what would it be like to have Jesus stand over you and look at all of those things, expose every one of them, and see every one of them clearly, and then say, these are done. These are finished. And then watch him throw them away. This is the good news of Jesus, our Savior, and his finished work. In John's Gospel, chapter 19, verses 1 through 30. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns, and they put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. And they came up to him saying, Hail, the king of the Jews. And they struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I'm bringing him out to you so that you may know that I find no guilt in him. And so Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, People said, and Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate said, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered, and they said, We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he's made himself the Son of God. And when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, Will you not speak to me? Don't you know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? And Jesus did answer him and said, you, have, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. And from then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you're no friend of Caesar's. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement, which in Aramaic is Gabbatha. Now it was the day of the preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, Behold your king. So they cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. So Pilate delivered him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the Place of the Skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription. For the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. 
So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Don't write the king of the Jews. Rather, this man said, I am king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and they divided them into four parts, one for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch. They held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. He bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Join me as we pray. Lord Jesus, this morning we come to a passage that holds out clearly for us your sacrifice, your suffering in our place, the shame, the atrocity, the ugliness and violence and torture. Here we see divine wrath for sin that should be ours. Lord Jesus, in all of these things, would you let us find great comfort and rest in your sacrifice in our place? Would you assure our hearts that your work is finished? While we don't see our redemption in full, our redemption has been won and accomplished. While we still fight our sin and sanctification and you continue your ministry to us, do you remind us this morning that our sin has been dealt with once and for all? That it is a dead enemy, that it carries no guilt for us anymore. Lord Jesus, do these things for us. Let us find rest and hope and joy in you this morning. We ask all of these things in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Like so much of Scripture, this passage is deep water. Just about every passage passage in Scripture could be described that way. Every passage of Scripture has more than we can explain or diagram and outline in a single sermon. This passage has so much going on in it, I feel a little bit like I'm going to drown in it. There is way more here than I can say, and you can reassure the people in worship training I'm not going to try and say all of it. If you hear nothing else this morning, I want you to fixate on Jesus' statement at the end, it is finished. After all of the building that you see through the passage, everything that accumulates and builds up steam, it concludes appropriately and finally with his authoritative statement that it is done. What we mean by that, when we rehearse that as a church, 
And what Christ meant by that from the cross is that His work is done, redemption has been accomplished and won for us. It doesn't mean that His ministry is through. It doesn't mean that He doesn't continue to be kind to us and take care of us. It doesn't mean that He ceases being our priest or He ceases making intercession for us. It doesn't mean that He's not kind to us in the ministry of the Spirit, in our sanctification. His ministry is ongoing, but His ministry occurs for us as redemption that's already been won is worked out. His work, His redeeming work is done. All of it has been accomplished. You can think of it this way. It's a little odd to think about things being finished, but kind of ongoing. Everything has been accomplished that needs to be, and we are progressively coming to enjoy and rest in them more and more. And one day we will enjoy them finally. Kind of like when you pack for a vacation. And you have all the stress that leads up for the vacation. You have all of the work that you need to do ahead of time, all of the meetings that you need to postpone, the vacation reminder on your email, all of those last-minute phone calls, the bills you need to pay, the things you need to pack, the arrangements you need to make for children, house sitters and dogs, someone to water the plants and pick up the paper. You have to tell your neighbors. All of that stuff is horrific and busy. It is the opposite of your vacation. And in the middle of it, you start to wonder if vacation's actually worth it. Is rest actually on the other side of this? We're leaving for vacation on Tuesday. And so things pick up for us and we get busier. And we've started packing. Everything is laid out on the bed. Everything that I need, everything that Kara needs, everything that each of our children need. Everything is laid out and ready to be packed. And I will be stressed and I will not sleep well until we're actually on the plane probably. Because I'll be wondering, have I forgotten something? I'll be wondering, has everything been accomplished and taken care of? And there will be a point of no return when everything we've packed is all we're taking. We will be on the plane, and we're not going to go home and get anything else for the vacation. And we'll sit down on the plane, and that will be the moment where I think to myself, to a much lesser degree than Jesus said it here, it's finished. All of the preparation is done. Everything is accomplished. Now all that's left is for us to enjoy it. When I'm sitting down and I think to myself, it's finished and done, when the work is complete, that doesn't mean there's not ongoing enjoyment. That doesn't mean that we won't do all of the things with our kids that we enjoy doing and all the things that we've planned for and packed for. But it will mean that we have prepared and accomplished all that needed to take place so those things can happen. When we get to chapter 19 in John's gospel, this becomes the crux of John's gospel preaching for us. No pun really intended there, but crux comes from the Latin word for cross, because it's the intersection. It's the place where everything converges, and here at the cross, all of redemptive history, all of our redemptive hope, all of our need, all of the curse, everything converges in this one scene. All of the atrocities, all of the pains, all of the sin, all of the betrayal, all of the doubt, all of the redemptive hope and expectation, everything converges at this one point as Jesus is tortured and denied and disbelieved and dismissed. All of it builds to this moment. And John has written his book so that everything builds to this crux. 
Jesus has proclaimed this regularly in the preaching of John's book. In John 3, Jesus talked about the way that Moses lifted up a serpent in the wilderness, so he will be lifted up for healing. In John 8, he said, When I am lifted up, you will know that I'm the Son of Man. In John 12, he looked ahead and said, When I am lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. Throughout his preaching in the book, he's also constantly made those enigmatic statements about his hour not yet being here. You see them all the time. In John 2, when Mary wants him to turn water into wine at a wedding, at first he refuses on the basis that his hour had not yet come. When he sits down at the well with the woman from Samaria, he explains to her that there's an hour coming when real worship will not be geographically bound. Real worshipers will be gathered to the Father and they will worship in spirit and truth. In John 5, he tells the crowd that the dead will hear the Son's voice and they will live. In John 7, he's not arrested in the treasury. and In John 8, he's not arrested in the temple. And both times... He makes the statement, because my hour has not yet come. And in John 12, as he looks ahead to the cross, as he gets ready to sit down with his disciples, as he makes preparation both to celebrate with them and make his final instructions to them and pray with them as their priest in John 17, that whole section starts out with Jesus knowing that now is the hour for him to be glorified. Now the hour is here. You shouldn't read all of those other chapters in John as if they're isolated episodes. And this one happens to be a particularly good one. All of them have been building up to this point. This is the hour he's been talking about. This is the reason other things didn't happen earlier in the book, because the hour had not yet come. And when we get to 19, the hour's here. This is it. Everything converges at this point. And in this one passage, we see Christ dealing with every shade of wrong, everything that is wrong with the world. All of those things, all of those worlds collide in this passage as well. In this passage, you see some artistic and some very explicit pictures of what's wrong with the world. You see the curse and a creation at odds with itself. You see systemic corruption in religious institutions and in the abuse of power in the government, pandering, humiliation, and human cruelty, all while divine justice is played out against sin in the world. Throughout Scripture, the story of the garden and what Adam and Eve lost, and what we suffer under now, that is played out over and over in several pictures, so don't miss it here. In that first garden, Adam and Eve ate fruit from a forbidden tree, and they found judgment and curse. And a creation that used to live in perfect harmony with them and with itself, underneath God's sovereign rule, suddenly is at odds with itself. And what God pronounces over them is a curse that includes thorns, and struggle, and eating by the sweat of your brow. And people who were naked and unashamed are suddenly very aware, very ashamed of their nakedness. Exposed and vulnerable, they hide. And in this passage, Jesus is stripped 
and exposed, unhidden and beaten. And he's crowned with a crown of thorns. He wears the thorns of our curse, and he is hung on a tree to find our judgment. This time, not a forbidden tree, but a tree of God's own appointment and choice. A tree that Jesus has anticipated from the very beginning of his ministry. They crown him with this crown of thorns, not like the Burger King crown that you used to get as a kid. Not quite like the crown that the king or queen of England would wear with jewels. This one looks more like the wreath that a Caesar would have worn. This is a Roman crown. This is the wreath that they awarded when someone won the games. When you were a victor, or when an emperor returned home from conquest, you were crowned with a wreath. Instead of being crowned with a normal wreath, Jesus is crowned as the mocked victor, as the mocked king with the thorns of our curse. They offer him fake devotion and sarcastic worship and love. All of this is the garden getting ready to be turned on its head, but not yet. First he takes the full weight of the curse. Notice also all of the cruelty and corruption. It's not just a garden scene. In this story, we have the crux of what's been building over several chapters now, especially through the end of 18 We have this twisted bureaucracy. We have wrong allegiance and alliance between God's people and their religious officials and a foreign, godless government who will not acknowledge God himself. In it, we see cold and sadistic behavior. I'm not bringing this up to be gory, but I want you to notice the cruelty that happens in this passage, apparently for sport. As God is pouring out divine wrath against our sin, we also see the cruelty of man ongoing. Last week, the passage that John preached ended as Pilate said, I find no guilt in this man refusing to judge him. And we get that again in verse 4. He brings Jesus back out to the Jews, and he says, I don't find any guilt in him. I can't judge him. There's no case. There's no evidence of real wrong. There's nothing wrong here. Go home. But in the meantime, he beats him. In the meantime, he has him flogged, and his soldiers humiliate him and dress him up, mock him and strike him. It's cruelty just for sport. They aren't angry at him the way the religious leaders are. They're not upset. They don't think they're serving God by dealing with a heretic. They beat him for fun. They beat him because they've become enamored with this kind of cruelty and torture. So they have him flogged. They humiliate him. And ironically, the Jews are glad for it. All of this takes place as they're preparing for the Passover. 
This is the final day of preparation for the final feast that culminates, that the Passover celebration culminates in. Remember, the Passover is a celebration of the Lord delivering His people from an oppressive foreign power where they were slaves and false worship. In Exodus, God actually delivered His people from a pagan nation that tormented them with unjust work and unjust treatment and false worship. And He delivered them to belong to Himself, to be liberated and free, not just in their work, not just in their free time, but in worship of Him, to belong to Him, like John said in the beginning of our worship this morning. They had been delivered in love, and now the Jewish people have traveled to Jerusalem. Instead of the picture of the Passover where they left Egypt, they've come back, and they've joined together not to flee a foreign power, but to help it out to bring someone and accuse him of treason and to have injustice served against one of their own. So they join in with ungodly oppression and they join in in concert, not as a grassroots movement, the high priest and the high priestly family, their officials lead the people in false worship, in denying the only one worth worshiping. And so they come here and they argue with Pilate over whether or not he is their king. Pilate says it to them and they deny it. And here we see one more thing completely wrong with this picture. These people who a thousand years ago clamored to have a king just like all the nations around them, here they have their king. They have a perfect, sacrificial, and benevolent king who is wise and good and faultless. A king unlike the nations have. And they don't want him. They ask Pilate to deal with him so they don't have to. And in their rejection, the nations are being given a king. He is the king of Israel. And he is being held up in front of the nations to be the good king over all of creation all at once. Think of prophecies like in Isaiah, Isaiah 42. I will make you a covenant for the people and a light to the nations. Or one that we saw last summer as we were going through Malachi in Malachi 1. I will make my name great among the nations. And so here in a twist, as Jesus is humiliated in front of the nations, as he is paraded out in both a Jewish and a Roman court, He's labeled king in a not insignificant way as Pilate inscribes in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. Not just the language of the Hebrews. Not just for those people to see and sneer. Jesus' royal title while meant to be a joke, is held out in several languages as he's crucified because he is going to be presented as a light to the nations and their king. So here in this passage, 
the hopes and doubts of God's people and the cruelty and the corruption of systems and the curse that's active in the world at large, all of these things converge in one scene, in one court, as Jesus suffers for us, as His work is coming to a head, as He gets ready to accomplish all that's needed for our redemption, because He's not suffering these things incidentally. These aren't a bunch of coincidences that have stacked up. This is God picturing for us all that needs to be set right and making Jesus suffer the wrong in all of these worlds to put all of them right. And so God has built in redemptive history this crux of wrong and brokenness, this crux of the curse, so that Jesus can take all of it from every direction under God's sovereign direction because what Jesus ultimately suffers is not an unfortunate history or an unfortunate set of events that are coincidentally aligned. He is suffering the divine justice that our sin deserves. What's pictured for us in this passage and what Jesus is dealing with here is not just everything that's wrong in the world. It's everything that's wrong in us on our own. When Jesus takes the cross and accepts all of this in himself to deal with it once and for all. We call that the atonement. It's a word that we throw around often in church. It's a theological word we use in Bible studies. This is going to feel a little bit pedantic, but it's an old English word. Think about the way it's spelled. It actually comes from at-one-ment. Atonement is actually taking things that are incorrectly related, that have been displaced and rearranged and live in disharmony, and they're put back together in concert together. Harmony is restored in atonement. And through the centuries, the church has had different ways of understanding and explaining the atonement. Different teachers at different times have emphasized different pieces of the atonement. And Christ is accomplishing all of these things But if we hold on to one at the neglect of some of the others, that mistake can be fatal. We can misunderstand what God is actually accomplishing for us. And the words, it is finished, will start to lose depth and meaning. Some have taught that the atonement is primarily governmental. That God is looking at a disordered creation of people who do not take sin and justice and civil order very seriously. And so by punishing Christ on the cross, he's making us take it very seriously. He's teaching us an object lesson, and he's restoring order by making an example. There is the tiniest sense in which that is true. That is part of the atonement. Paul argues in Romans consistently that Christ fulfilled the law, that he was perfect under the law, that even his sacrifice in the law is right, that it's according to the law. Even little pieces in this story, like his tunic not being divided, fulfill laws like in Leviticus when the the garments of a priest are not to be torn. All of it fulfills the law. All of it doesn't, all of it, let me say that differently, none of it violates the order that God has established in his law. But what he's giving us is not primarily an object lesson. 
Some have emphasized that God is teaching us virtue, not so much order but specific virtue. People talk about the moral influence of the cross and the atonement. And there are certainly pictures in the New Testament of this, like in Ephesians 5, that Christ's Husbands are to love their wives the way Christ has loved the church. That would be moral influence. In Philippians 2, that the church is supposed to live together in mutual humility the way that Christ submitted himself in humility to the Father in obedience that led ultimately to the humility of the cross. Or in 1 John 3, when John says, we've come to know love in this Christ died for us, and now we're supposed to love each other in sacrificial, in self-denying ways, just like Christ has loved us. Those things are moral influences. Those things are instructive and come from the cross and the atonement. But that is not all that was disordered in us. That was not all that needed to be set right and dealt with in the cross. If we only had those types of views of the atonement we'd be left with a very instructive atonement. That fundamentally we didn't understand and God has taught us a lesson and now what's left for us is just to imitate. There's certainly imitation, but not after things have been, not until after things have been accomplished for us. The atonement actually has to be effective. It actually has to accomplish something on our behalf that we cannot do for ourselves. At the risk of beating a dead horse, I'm going to go back to my packing analogy. As Kara has laid out all of the things that we need packed for our trip, she has not laid things out to be instructive to our children so that she can put them all away and let them pack themselves for the trip. They wouldn't have underwear, socks, they wouldn't bring anything they needed. You know that's true. If you asked them to pack themselves, they'd have comic books and candy and nothing else. What she's actually doing is accomplishing for them the things they need done so that they can enjoy our trip together, so that they can be with us on vacation and actually be cared for and provided for. They can't pack themselves. And so she's packing for them. She might instruct them along the way. She might pull Sophie June aside and say, this is why we pack this way. When you're in charge of packing, do it this way. But what she's doing in this packing is accomplishing for them things that they cannot do for themselves. Christ is not primarily instructing us when he goes on the cross. This is not his whiteboard lesson for the church. He is affecting and accomplishing for us our redemption. He is winning for us something we could never win for ourselves. In the atonement, we have the better models. We have his divine satisfaction and substitution for us. That God the Father is satisfied in Jesus being judged in our place for our sin. Not for sin in general. For every sin you wish you could hide or take back or undo, all of that has already been dealt with. And God himself is really satisfied. When Jesus says, it is finished, he is declaring divine satisfaction over the sacrifice he himself just offered. 
He is presenting a sacrifice to God the Father. He is acting as our priest. But Father, Son, and Spirit are satisfied together. None of them are angry at us over our sin anymore. God Himself, the three in one, the Trinity, is satisfied. Because our sin, if we belong to Christ, has actually been punished once and for all in the cross. Not 80%, not 90%, not all, but just a little bit that you need to nudge over the top with penance. All of it has been dealt with and put away. Divine wrath is satisfied. In the atonement, we have Christ's victory over evil. Through this means, he has trampled sin underfoot by being trampled underfoot in our place. This is the crux of history where all evil is undone. This is the unlikely, unrecognized, foolish-looking victory of God himself. All of redemptive history and all of Jesus' ministry on earth led to this point. And at the cross, Jesus did for us what we could not do for ourselves. And he was punished infinitely in our place because our sin, our wrong, the wrongness of who we are and what we think and what we love and what we say and what we do and the way we interact with each other All of that wrong, all of that brokenness was taken up together in the cross for his people and punished there and then put away. In Romans, Paul describes it as the place where God is able to remain just but also justify the ungodly. If he justified us without any real satisfaction, he wouldn't be be just, he would just suspend justice. He would just make an exception for a group of people. But by punishing our sin in the cross, God himself maintains his perfect justice, his perfect hatred of sin, and his perfect love for us as his people. Everything converges at the cross. And Jesus himself accepts all the punishment, all of the wrath, all of the abandonment, that we deserve, and all of those things that we have in ourselves, on our own, in our sin. He takes them on Himself. And just like we sang a moment ago, He groans on the tree for all of our crimes. He takes all of our guilt to His account. And to us, He gives His eternal joy. To us, He gives His perfect righteousness. His perfect obedience, the fullness of his life becomes ours. We are put at one. We are put back together and made whole, but not just instructed on how to be made whole. Not just better morals and a better sense of order. Though some of those things happen because of the cross, we are actually put back together and made whole, and we are put at one with a God to whom we made ourselves enemies in our sin and rebellion. A God that should have forsaken us. Jesus is forsaken in our place. 
when his suffering and humiliation are complete, he preaches to us from the cross the good news. It is finished. Think about everything you regret, everything you wish you could hide, your darkest secret, or your deepest shame. Things that you wish no one knew about you. Scars you wish you did not have because of your sin. Every wrong love. Every failure as a son or daughter or friend. Your failures as a mother or father or a husband or a wife. Everything that you know deep down to be wrong about you. Everything that nags at you while you try to sleep. Every self-doubt and accusatory thought you have that are legitimate because you know you're not whole like you should be. All of those things are dealt with and crushed and put away at the cross because Jesus is crushed in our place. And so what he gives us is his freedom from those things. He gives to us his fullness, his righteousness, his lack of regret, his joy. Jesus looked at all that he accepted in himself on the cross, all of the things we wish we could shed on our own, and he preached to us. We weren't able to shed them, but he was able to steal them from us. It's funny that he takes Barabbas' place. He takes the place of a robber on the cross, and he's the one stealing our guilt and our sin and our brokenness for himself so that he can wear it and punish it in the cross. He doesn't give it back. Jesus sees all of these things. He sees you and he smiles in the face of your regret and doubt all of your guilt, he looks at you, he embraces you, he preaches the good news to you, it is finished. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace to us. You have taken all, all that separated us from you, every rebellion, every way that we hide ourselves, every self-abusive cruelty, you have taken those things and you gave them to Jesus to carry on the cross. Now they've been dealt with once for all. His ministry continues to us. He continues to pray for us, to intercede for us as our living intercession, as the one victorious over death and the curse and our sin. And in the face of every enemy, he preaches to us, it is finished. Oh Lord Jesus, we thank you for your finished work. We thank you for who you are and what you've done for us. We look forward in hope to the day that we will see redemption in its fullness. 
but we rest knowing that our redemption has already been won. Well, we wait for you to return and let us see all of its benefits at once in blinding brilliance. You proclaim to us over and over again that none of it is contingent. There's nothing left to be done. You have won all of it for us. Lord Jesus, this is the ministry you give us with each other as you minister to us and serve us at your table. Would you now let us feel the full assurance of these things as we come to eat and drink? As we taste and see your goodness, would you remind us these things have been finished and won. Now you serve them to us in joy as we rest in your presence. Do these things for us, we pray, and ask in the name of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. Amen.